17 uh, this morning. Colossians chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's read the Word of God this morning. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your transgressions, trespasses, excuse me, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray before we begin. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you today and we ask that your word uh, would speak to us, would uh, be with us, that we would uh, delight in it, that you would strengthen us, encourage us, and, and remind us of this close and, and effectual, effective union uh, that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, where we are in Him, and because we are in Him, uh, our sins have been put to death. The record against them has been uh, wiped out. And we just praise you and thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, yesterday uh, was the anniversary of the Battle of D-Day, the 71st uh, anniversary. Uh, and those of you who, who aren't familiar uh, with military battles, uh, most of us, I'm, I hope, uh, would re- recognize the, the name D-Day. That's, of course, where the Allies, uh, during World War II, uh, they landed on the beaches of Normandy and began to, to take back the country of France and then Europe uh, from the Germans. Uh, it's, it's no understatement to say that it was a, a turning point in the war. Uh, and when those uh, men landed on the beaches, uh, young boys, many of them, uh, they had to get off the beaches very quick. They had a, uh, I was just actually reading last night a, a biography on uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the commanding general, and he was elaborating the, the timetable that they had to get off these beaches in certain days. They, by certain days, they had to make it to certain points. And, and the first 24 hours was the most crucial because it was in those time frame, if they didn't accomplish some of their objectives, uh, the German General Rommel could come in and actually it would be very easy for him to drive them back into the ocean and it would have been a catastrophe. You, you don't win a battle uh, by surrendering to the enemy. You, you don't win the battle by allowing the enemy to defeat you and, and kill you. It's just not the way uh, that military victories work. And yet we are in a passage of Scripture where the Lord Jesus Christ does just that. He wins the battle for us by allowing the enemies of him to kill him on the cross. And we're going to talk today about how that battle is effective, how that battle applies to us. And yet in verse 15, there is just the greatest of ironies that the very moment that he is on the cross being put to death and and the cross was a very shaming thing in the Roman world. You did not wear them around your necks like little trinkets. 
They were disgusting and shameful, and you didn't talk about crosses and crucifixions in polite conversations. The very moment where the world is thinking that Jesus Christ is being shamed and defeated is the very moment that he is shaming his enemies and winning the battle. And we need to see just how effective that win is for us as we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are so tied to him. We are so united to him that what he accomplishes on the cross is the very things that apply to us in our spiritual life. So this morning, our main point is simply only you being in Jesus has the power to defeat sin. There are a lot of things in the Christian life that are good. There are a lot of things that are helpful, a lot of things that that we should do as part of our our spiritual devotional life. But it is only being in Jesus Christ, having this relationship with him where we are tied to him in a, a holy union. It is only that which effectively defeats sin. The cross of Jesus Christ was like the D-Day of the battle between good and evil where sin is conquered. But it is that battle which applies to us. So we're actually going to have four points this morning. I know uh, you're, you're maybe disappointed. I usually have three, right? Uh, so I'm going to try to work a little faster. I'm going to do something a little bit different in that I'll try to give some applications along the way, but I'm really going to try to tie it all together uh, in the end. So just bear with me if you're a slave to my structures. I just wanted to give you a heads up. First, this morning, in your union with Jesus Christ, you have been set free from the sinful flesh. You have been set free from the sinful flesh so that just as Christ died in the body of His flesh, right? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He has a real human uh, body. So also His death removes the bondage of our sinful nature. We're going to see how Paul ties some of this together and has a small uh, play on words here. But look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So to understand some of the analogies that Paul is drawing here, to understand some of the difficult language that Paul is talking about, we we need to have in in the back of our minds the, the biblical understanding of our union with Jesus Christ. Again, I've been using other words like we are connected, we are we are tethered to Christ. But when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we enter into a relationship with him. We are united to Him, much like we might be united to our spouse in marriage. But we are united to Him so closely that that all the benefits that He has achieved on the cross are now at work and in place upon us. He has accomplished the forgiveness of sins and it comes to us. He has achieved a perfect righteousness and it is uh, legally uh, given to us. There are many ways that we could talk about this. We are adopted into his family, all of these things. But turn with me, keep your finger in Colossians chapter 2 and turn with me to Romans chapter 6 because Paul uses some of the same language and I want this in the the back of our minds as we explain Colossians 2 Uh, especially verses 11 and 12. 
Romans chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6 says this. We were buried together, or we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead uh, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The old self is who we are in the deadness of our transgressions. It is who we are as an unbeliever when we are living in active rebellion against God. And when we have and place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that old sinful self with all the guilt and consequences of that sin is put to death. We become, as Paul uses language elsewhere, we become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now we want to be very clear that we still have the presence of sin in our life. But sin does not have anymore the same enslaving power it doesn't hold me under the condemnation any longer not only that i am i'm so given this new life and i'm given the holy spirit in jesus christ that i can actually do something that i wasn't able to do before and that's love god that is resist sin that is make uh, advancements in in spiritual growth all because Who I was was put to death, and now I am alive in a new way in Jesus Christ. So we have this connection, we have this union, this being united to Jesus, and then also His his death becomes our death, His resurrection becomes a new spiritual life for us. Not only that, the future bodily resurrection we get, we get that because of Jesus, right? So now think about what Paul says in Colossians 2.11. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. I just don't want to be too graphic here, just give you a little warning. I do want to say physical circumcision is, is that operation where obviously they remove a part of the skin, a part of the flesh on the male sex organ, right? But Paul is using it to describe a spiritual procedure. He is not talking about physical bodily circumcision. In fact, it is a circumcision made without hands. It is something that God is doing in us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. The sinful flesh, play on the word flesh there, that sinful worldliness that I have in me is removed. It is put to death. In Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's not talking about the physical flesh, but he's talking about those attributes of my sinfulness which, which permeate who I am. And, and in that, I have this hardened heart against God. I am dead in my transgressions, and this needs to be removed. In the Old Testament, 
physical circumcision was a sign that you became a part of the people of God. In the New Testament, what takes place is not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision when I come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, this was the very thing that the Old Testament uh, practice looked forward to. In fact, in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses, he, he tells the uh, believers in the people of Israel, he says, circumcise your hearts. He says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and let and be no longer stubborn. And then in Deuteronomy 30, verse six, he looks forward to a day where, where Israel, they will fall into sin. They will rebel. They will break all of God's commands. And then Moses says, and there will come a time. And it says, Deuteronomy 30, verse six, and the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Israel, in all of her history, think about all of those Old Testament stories that you remember from your Sunday school days. How many times was she stubborn? Probably more than we can count, right? Uh, the, the, the apex of her stubbornness is when she is down below Mount Sinai. Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments and she is down there making this idol. In the book of Judges, there's this ongoing cycle where she is constantly stubborn, constantly going after other gods. She has this heart where, where she has been given God's law, but, but she looks at it and says, I don't need this. I don't want this. This is so hard. I'm not going to keep this. And what we need is the new covenant which Jeremiah prophesies, which Ezekiel prophesies, which, which Deuteronomy 30 gives us hints of. And in that new covenant, a spiritual circumcision takes place where Jesus changes our hearts and puts the Spirit inside of us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that, that we as believers are the true circumcision, the, the true people of God. In Romans chapter 2, he talks about us uh, as people who are not Jewish outwardly going through the marks of physical circumstance, circumcision. But whether you're ethnically Jew or Gentile, you are a Jew inwardly, meaning you are part of the people of God inwardly because your heart has been circumcised. What Paul is doing here is he's making a play on words where the parallel is around circumcision. So that in the death of Jesus Christ, the, the literal physical body of flesh that he has is stripped off. He dies and the body goes in the grave. But what Paul is saying is that when that applies to you and I, when I come to faith in Jesus Christ and I have this union with Jesus Christ, my spiritual flesh... That, that worldliness which wells up in me, that is stripped away because I am crucified in Jesus Christ. His circumcision, in effect, is his death. But that brings upon me a spiritual circumcision where that sinfulness, that sinful flesh, is removed and taken away. Again, Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. God has removed your dead heart and given you a new one. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ where, where his flesh is killed and stripped away now also removes, kills, strips away all the enslaving 
power of my sinful flesh. Only Jesus Christ and experiencing a a union with Him has value in removing the sinfulness which is in me. In fact, later on, Paul tells us, and we'll look at this next week, Colossians 2.23. He talks about these self-made religions and these asceticism, this severity of the body, all these religious motions that they are going through. And he says this, and they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They can't fight sin. This is our first application, and we'll just kind of flag it in your mind as we'll come back to this later. But only Christ's work that is not done with human hands can give you the power and the ability to fight sin. And it, and it, and it accomplishes something in you. That you really are something new. A, a new creation. I, I recognize and the Bible teaches that yes, as a believer, the, the presence of sin will always be with us in this life. But you are given a new energy, a new spiritual power, literally a new life in Jesus. And because there is a new life, that old has been put to death just as surely as Jesus Christ died on the cross. Your union with Him puts to death who you used to be. Second, this morning, in your union with Christ, you and I have, a, have been raised to new life. So look at verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the power and working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. So now what Paul does is he, he switches imagery from circumcision uh, to the imagery of baptism. And, and notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't make circumcision and baptism the same thing. He doesn't bring uh, the two together and say circumcision in the Old Testament is now baptism in the New Testament. And this is the verse that some people use to say, just as you circumcised infants in the Old Testament, we should baptize babies in the New Testament. And that's just going way out of bounds for what Paul has in mind here. But, but what he does say is there's this circumcision where you are, where, where you're flesh is taken off of you as you are put to death in Christ, then there is also this baptism where you are buried in Jesus. So, So the imagery is on the one hand, your old self dies, just like a circumcision. And then there's this imagery that, that your old self is is so completely dead that it's buried, just like in your baptism. In your baptism, uh, if you do it the right way, you go under the water and you come back out. This is what baptized means to to immerse. They use the word uh, often when they would speak of of dyeing cloth. And if you've ever done like tie dyeing or anything, you know, you have to get the shirt all the way under. You baptize it in the same way that Christ's body went into the grave and was all the way under death. We are baptized into Jesus Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Your baptism is a sign and symbol then of your union with Jesus, of your identification with him, that what happens to him, death, 
burial, resurrection happens to you. You have died to sin. You are buried with Him. You go under that water. You come back out, the symbol of your new resurrection life. So I have a little mini chart up here. You can kind of see the connection, right? This is the pattern that goes for Christ. Death, burial, resurrection. Whenever you preach the gospel, you need those basics in there. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was died. He was dead and in the grave for three days. On the third day, he rose again. It's the same connection. Now in Christ, I died to sin, the old self. I am am buried. The old self is buried in Christ. And I become alive now, rising up in new spiritual life, the new man, the new creation. Again, Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us has been baptized into Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus Christ really died. You know that to be true. And if you have put your faith and trust in Him, you have really, your old sinful self has really died. And it has been buried. We should all follow the commands of of baptism, but even if someone never is able to get baptized, Their life is in Him. They have become united with Him. There is, in a sense, the moment we believe a a spiritual baptism where we go through all that Jesus has gone through by our union with Him. And then when we come and do the physical elements, we are testifying. We're testifying our profession of faith. We are testifying our profession in what Jesus has done. But we are also giving a visible proclamation that this is what God has done upon me in Jesus Christ. He has put to death who I was. He has buried me in Jesus. And He now raised me up so that I could walk in newness of life, a new obedience, a new spiritual love for God, a new desire to serve Him. All of these things flow together. Colossians 2.13 You were dead in your trespasses. So here, Paul is playing with the idea of dead. On the one hand, spiritually, the old self is put to death in Christ. On the other hand, that old self that lived and ran around and loved doing all these things, he was in a spiritual condition of deadness, whereby we could not respond to God. That's what Paul means then by this uncircumcision of the flesh. We had this sinful nature that had this stubborn heart like Old Testament Israel. And what did God do to that sinful dead self? He imparted life to me. So then, only the power of God accomplishes the defeat of sin and gives strength. And that really is a second application for you. And and just again, kind of flag this because we'll come back to it. But the same power that Jesus, God used on Jesus to raise him from the dead is the same power that God puts in you through the Holy Spirit to actually enable you to walk in newness of life. This is why we should never be content to stay where we are as a Christian. 
We, we should never fall into that sort of, oh, you accepted Jesus as your, your Savior. Don't worry if you, you don't move on and, and start to show signs and fruit of spiritual work because we know you're saved. If you are saved, there is a genuine presence of spiritual life in you. Would God have raised Jesus from the dead and then Jesus have said, I think I'm just going to stay here in the tomb. I like it here. Nice and cool, a lot of shade, just a wonderful place to be. No, Jesus gets up and exits the grave. He walks in a bodily resurrection and he appears to the disciples in the same way that spiritual power, the power of God raised Jesus from the dead. It has raised you to new life. And so we shouldn't have this desire to sit on our hands and say, well, you know, if I never come to round uh, to following God or walking in his ways, that's okay. Romans 8.11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, that could be talking about the future resurrection where we get life to our mortal bodies. But I tend to think Paul is talking about uh, what goes on in us spiritually, that spiritual life is given to our mortal bodies. Let me ask you this, then. How can you and I be assured that God is actually working in us to conquer sin? We all get to those places in our, our spiritual life where we are stumbling with a sin, perhaps we're finding ourselves repeating it over and over again. And every time we do it, we feel a genuine and godly sense of guilt. But we do start to doubt and we say, is God really going to let me conquer this sin? Is God really at work with me? Because I am struggling to fight this so hard and I don't seem to be having victory. First off, think of this. If you were still dead in your trespasses of your sin, you wouldn't have a desire to fight sin, right? The desire to fight sin is a mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But even more, look at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus really did die on the cross. I I trust that is true with all of us. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the most basic confession of faith that you made, Jesus Christ rose again. If you know that, know also that God has put the power within you to fight sin. It really is there just as assuredly as Christ really did bodily rise from the dead. And why is this? Because you are so tethered to Christ, you are so united to Christ, that His work on the cross and in the resurrection actually works itself out in you. All that Christ has accomplished will be effective upon you because God has united you to Jesus Christ. Third this morning, then, in your union with Christ, the record of your debt is removed. So we, we have been forgiven of our trespasses, the end of verse 13, verse 14, by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This record is removed. It is blotted out. It, it means that, that it is obliterated 
that it is destroyed, that there is no trace left whatsoever. I was going to actually text Helen last night and say, can you give me a legal definition of the word expunged? Because uh, I was looking at some of the legal stuff, and what does it mean? Is the record still there? Uh, but it, when your record is a sponge, as near as I can understand it, it is so sealed that, it, that in the eyes of the court, it does not exist anymore. There might be a physical paper there or something still in a file somewhere. But lawyers and other people cannot bring it up against you and say, oh, by the way, he has this past crime. If it is expunged in the eyes of the law, that crime was never done. It's as if you had never done it. It no longer hangs over you. Even if you serve all your time for a crime, your record is not expunged. They can look it up and say, oh yeah, he did this, he did this. But when it is expunged, they cannot find it. Christ has expunged the record of your transgressions that were lined up against you. All of those sins that you've done, Christ so effectively pays for them that when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He he is not sitting there up in heaven anymore with this record before Him. It It is blotted out. It is entirely removed. When you sin, you sin against God, and sin brings a curse, uh, breaking God's law. And so just like in our day, when you break the law, there is this record. But the cross of Christ, God takes that record and He nails it to the cross, and the blood of Jesus so covers it that it is so blotted out that you cannot find anymore a record of your sins. Now, you know, in one sense, God in His omniscience always knows what you did. God doesn't forget literally, but figuratively and spiritually, God does not remember those sins. He does not stand as a judge anymore reading against you the court and love of record of your law breaking and say, this is what you've done. He looks at you and sees this is what Jesus Christ has done. And his blood covers you. And it washes your sins as white as snow. Your union with Christ, in your union, the record of your debt is removed. Fourthly, this morning, in Christ then, God triumphs over rulers and authorities. Verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Uh, this word he disarmed is very similar. It's the exact same word as used in verse 11 when it says about the putting off. He, he disarmed them. He removed something from them. They, they no longer have power and authority because God has put them to shame by what Jesus Christ has done. Someone comes and they want to wrongly make you feel guilty. Satan stirs up doubts in your heart. God has disarmed their power. Put them to shame for what they try to do to you. This is battle imagery. This is war imagery. Uh, The writer Josephus, a Jewish writer at the time, 
talks uh, in, in one of his books about how uh, Romans, when they had these victories, they would, they would bring out the generals and the armies and the prisoners of war, and they would parade them before the crowds, and, and everybody would cheer and, and shout humiliating things at these people who had defe- been defeated in battle. And, and it would be this wonderful celebration for the Romans. You didn't want to be on the losing side because it was shameful, and they let you know it. He describes one of these instances, and he says the general who was captured, his name was Simon, son of Goras, who had been led in this triumph among the captives. A rope had been put upon his head, and he had been drawn into the proper place in the forum, and withal had been tormented by those who drew him along. This, this shameful humiliation of this losing general. Then Josephus says, and the law of the Romans required that the malefactors condemned to die should be slain there. And when it was related that there was an end of him, all the people had sent up a shout for joy. This loser of the great war was dragged in and people are cheering and they're they're cheering to the Roman generals and they're jeering at the crowd. And then when they kill him, the crowd is so vast, you, you can imagine a word going out where, where they can't all see him, but someone says, he's dead. And everybody just, yeah, it was like a sporting event. Paul says that's what happens to our enemies when Jesus Christ dies on the cross. The irony is they think they're winning the battle. They think the Messiah, the anointed one, whether they were the Jewish leaders or the Gentiles or or perhaps the, the demons themselves, when they think that Jesus Christ has been defeated by being put to death and perhaps cheering, we no longer have this annoying Messiah trying to take away our power as Pharisees. They're the ones being shamed. They're the ones whose power, whose authority, whose human claims to whatever spiritual authority they might want, all of it was defeated because Christ died for our sins. He is being shamed. But He, in His self-sacrifice, is shaming everything that would stand against or stand over you and I. I want to make three applications and I'm going to try to unpack each one a little bit. First, God has given you every reason then for confidence in Him. The interesting thing about the Battle of D-Day is, um, you know, they didn't know if they were going to win or not. And even within the first hours, although things started to look like they were going moderately well, General Eisenhower was very cautious He didn't want to say too much. He didn't want to get people worked up and assume that victory was at hand. They didn't know if they would break out. It wasn't until they were, you know, 50 or 60 miles inland that they were sure that they had established a good beachhead. Not so with you as a Christian. You can have a confidence. You can look at Christ and and know for certain that your sin has been paid for, but also that you have this now equipping to fight sin. The challenge is to actually then have 
confidence in the effectiveness of Jesus. Your confidence in any spiritual battle or any battle against any temptation does not reside in you. It resides in what Jesus has done for you. And so you are so tethered to Jesus Christ in this unbreakable union that that when these trials come up, that when these struggles come up, you need to be reminded and encouraged. This is the one in whom your faith is. He is a rock. He will not move. Even more, and we've all gone through these circumstances where we've been fretting and worried and the guilt of sin has has plagued us. It's not wrong when a Christian feels guilty for sin. In fact, that is often the work of the Holy Spirit. But we have often experienced this this overwhelming undue sense of guilt. Those times where, where it's either our own conscience or perhaps the work of the the evil one where our heart is stirred up and and we sin and and right away what jumps into our minds is is God really going to forgive you this time you know you claim to be a child of him and and here you are again you've done this sin for the 10th time for the 20th time for the 100th time you know every time you said you were sorry is he really going to forgive you this time Are you really sure that Jesus isn't so upset with you that he's just going to shake his head and fold up his hands and walk away? Your union with Christ is so tight that those kinds of temptations, those kinds of doubt, those kinds of stirring up by the evil one, should, should flow off your, your back like water off a duck's back. That you can say, I am united to Jesus and his death will cover every sin that I've done, past, present, or future. And you can have a confidence that, that the Holy Spirit and the Son of God delight when you come back to him and you say, you know what, Jesus, I have sinned again. And I have nothing to bring before you except say, please forgive me because I trust that Jesus Christ dies for my sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just go on sinning carelessly and recklessly. But that does mean we shouldn't let ourselves get wrongly discouraged in the battle because the evil one does try to tempt us. Dear Christian, Jesus Christ does not shame you. In fact, he has shamed all of your enemies that try to bring up those temptations because he died for you on the cross. Second application then is I need nothing except Jesus Christ in my life to defeat the rule and power of sin in my life. When I'm in Christ... The enslaving power of sin is removed. Now, the presence of sin is still there, but I am a new creation. And it is only the work of Jesus applied through the Holy Spirit that can do this. So Colossians 3.9 says, you have put off the old self, put on the new self. 
He gives us an idea of what this looks like. 3.12, put on then as God's chosen one, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All of these, you can, you can feel that these are the, the tender mercies of Christ. These are the attributes that Jesus himself demonstrates. And you now and I as believers can actually put these things on. But it's because of Jesus. I can't put on mercy by coming up with a list of legalistic rules. I can't put on compassion and love and kindness by by trying to zealously keep the, the Old Testament food laws. I can't do these things by by going to a priest and, and confessing my sins to him or, or saying some Hail Marys or praying the rosary or engaging in, in Buddhistic-like meditation. I can only have these victories trusting in Jesus Christ and having him work in me. We're going to get next week to all the, the fake spiritualities that Colossians controlled or, or encountered. But know this, and this is the third thing then, all other forms of spirituality not according to Christ will be impotent to defeat the power and the presence of sin in you. Don't look and trust things other than Jesus. And I'm going to give just kind of a word of caution, and this is just as one illustration. We could probably abound in all kinds of illustrations, but sometimes... Even in the evangelical world, we take a good thing, a good practice, a good behavior, and we so lift that up that that becomes sort of the star example of how to fight sin. And if you don't do this, you're not going to fight, be able to fight sin in your life. And it becomes this rule of man. A good thing suddenly becomes a rule of man that we put upon ourselves. And I think the perfect example of this is, is the idea of an accountability partner. Now, let me say very clearly, I think accountability partners are a good thing. You know, an accountability partner is someone that you can, you're a good friend with them, you talk about things going on in your spiritual life. When you sin, you can talk to them, they encourage you, uh, they help you, maybe they even ask you in your battle against a certain sin. Uh, it's, it's very much like Galatians 6.2, which says, bear one another's burdens, or James 5.16, which says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. An accountability partner is a good thing okay but what i have seen happen in some places and this is maybe in my younger days this is why i really resisted the idea of accountability partner even though it is a good thing is sometimes it became this mark of of super spirituality almost to the point was well if you don't have an accountability partner you're not going to be able to fight sin in your life if you don't have an accountability partner, there is, there's just no way you're going to be able to, to put off this sin and deal with it and, and have spiritual victory. So get an accountability partner. And then, you know, there are kind of a couple of presentations I heard. There was sort of like this guilt trip. Like, like you're not good enough if you don't have an accountability partner. I have some friends I can fight in. I, I'll tell you, I do have some accountability partners. But what happens is a good thing becomes an abused thing when we make it the only thing. And so what happens is people focus on having the accountability partner and they assume that that outward good activity 
can put to death the sin in you. You can easily lie to an accountability partner. Jesus Christ has to work on your heart even for an accountability partner to be a a work and a good thing and a tool that we might use. The point is this. In your spiritual life, what are the things that you are doing that may be distracting you from who the real power is? They're not necessarily bad things to do. They might be very good things to do as long as you remember and put first that Jesus Christ is the power and the Holy Spirit and his presence in you is the one that puts to death the deeds of the flesh and gives you new life. What I want to challenge you to do is it's, it's just if you're in that, that situation with some kind of good habit, just look at how you treat it and make sure that your focus is first on Jesus and not that you get so swept up with keeping the habit that you lose sight of the one whom the good habit honors. Jesus has the power, not the habit that you put in place. And that's what we want to get at this morning. We're going to, in a minute here, celebrate communion. Communion is a visible reminder of the union that you have with Jesus. You take in the symbol of his body. And it's a reminder that you have taken into your life, onto yourself, the work of Jesus Christ's body on the cross. You, you drink the symbol of his blood. And it's a reminder that as you trust in Jesus, you are so united with him that just as his blood coursed through his veins of his physical body, it now covers you and wipes away all the record of your sin. There's a reason that we call communion communion. Because it does encourage us. It builds us up and strengthens us. As we think about Jesus and hear the announcement of his word that he died on the cross and rose again, that his blood covers our sin, it strengthens that relationship. It strengthens that communion that we have with him. That we spiritually actually participate in all of the benefits just as you physically participate in the reminder of the body and blood. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us today as we celebrate communion, that we would be reminded of this wonderful, wonderful, sweet and precious union that we have with Jesus Christ, that as we take these elements, we would be reminded that they point to your real body and blood broken and shed for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. But that it also reminds us that now, as you are in heaven, we lift our eyes upward and say, we belong to you. We place our trust in you. And you have accomplished our salvation 
And we are united to you. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.